Today on Adventure Rider Radio's exclusive Deep Trouble series, we have pinned. Two riders, worlds apart, are pinned by their own motorcycles and find themselves in deep trouble. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Deep Trouble is an Adventure Rider Radio exclusive series, stories of riders who find themselves in, well, deep trouble. First, we hear what happened to them. Then we go back and retrace that experience, the unique challenges they faced, the strategies they used to get out, and ultimately the valuable lessons that there are to be learned in that. Most critically, we'll employ some counterfactual thinking and try to envision how things may have turned out differently if some of those controlled aspects were changed. That way, all of us riders can learn from their experiences and hopefully avoid our own deep trouble. Joe Siegel is a retired pilot, lives in Washington State. Joe loves his motorcycle adventures and has done many. On this trip, he finds himself alone in the dark and he's on a single lane mountain road in Mexico's Copper Canyon. And Joe is in deep trouble. My name is Joe Siegel. I live on Fox Island, Washington. I'm a retired uh, U.S. Air Force pilot and a retired United Airlines pilot. Been retired for almost 10 years. Joe, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Glad to be here. How long have you been riding motorcycles? Well, I just turned 69 and I started riding when I was 16. So other than one three-year period where I didn't have a bike, that's you can do the math on that one. No, I, so I can't over, do the over, math. That's too, that's too much <laughs> over, for me. <laughs> over 50 years. Oh, over 50 years. Wow, that's a long time. So uh, it was it was basically, you, you got into that before you got into flying. Oh, yeah. Well, I started started riding motorcycles when I was 16. Um, I started flying later on. I, I spent three years as an enlisted helicopter mechanic in the Army, and that got me interested in aviation and eventually uh, moved on to become a pilot in the Air Force after that. Oh. How about adventure riding? When did you start doing that? I, well, depending, I guess, how you identify adventure riding. People always ask me what that means. To, to me, the definition of adventure riding is riding a motorcycle outside of your own country 
including on and off-road. That's sort of my personal definition of it. Um, I took a tour to New Zealand in 2002. And when I was stationed in Germany and stationed in the Philippines, I had a motorcycle with me, but really didn't do any off-road. My first real adventure riding was actually, I took a tour with my wife in 2017. And uh, we did Ushuaia to Santiago, mm. which was 3,000 miles, 1,200, which was off-road. I was the only one with a pillion. Then we took another tour with another company in 2018. My wife is a pillion again, which included a lot of off-road in Argentina. But since then, I've been going on my, all my trips have been solo, pretty much. Is that because your wife doesn't want to go anymore? Uh, yeah, she had pretty, she enjoyed it, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was pretty challenging. And we had a tip over once where she twisted her ankle and she kind of said, well, that's enough for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, and I really, uh, f after the first trip, I decided to learn Spanish. So I've been studying Spanish intensively for six years now. So I've gotten to a conversational level. So um, I, I really enjoy going by myself and meeting the people and, going to local places and practicing the language and just having adventure otherwise than just going on a tour and everything set up for you. Wow. So I much, much more, although tours are fun and there's certainly some advantages to them. I much prefer going on my own. So studying Spanish, you did that strictly for travel? Uh, well, my whole life, I've always been fascinated about the idea of learning another language. Uh, I was a civilian pilot in Turkey for six months once and got real interested in learning Turkish, picked up a little bit of it. But after that 2017 trip through Argentina and Chile, I decided to tackle it seriously. So for the last six years, I've been spending 10 to 15 hours a week studying it intensively mm. in all, all sorts of different ways. So I've gotten to what's, what's called a B1 to B2 level, which means sort of an intermediate level where I could carry, I mean, I can't hold a discourse on nuclear physics, but I could certainly sit down all night and carry on conversations with people. So you, you could discuss you know, concepts and politics and things like that? Uh, well, it depends. There's, there's some websites out there. One of them is called Conversation Exchange, where you hook up with people that are learning English. Uh -huh. And you share video conversations for a couple hours, half in English and half in Spanish. And uh, you actually really get to know these people after a while. I visited three of them on some of my adventure trips down south of the border. And uh, if you share languages that way and you talk about anything and everything, Wow, that's really handy. So you get to meet up with the same person if you want to over and over again. Oh, yeah. I've been, I've been carrying on video conversations several times a week with four or five different people for four years oh, now. Oh, what a great reason. I've actually, I visited uh, three of them in Colombia and I visited a family in Guatemala that I was on the language exchange program with and I visited a family in Mexico for, for the same reason. Fantastic. And, and again, what's that website? Uh, well, there's a bunch of them. One of them is called conversationexchange.com. Hmm. Uh, but there's several of them out there. My language exchange, et cetera. Wow. That's interesting. Well, on, on this, um, this thing that we're talking about here is of course about deep trouble for our deep trouble episode. You were on a trip. Can you just sort of set this up? What, what was this trip about? When did it happen? Where were you? Well, this was uh, my 10th planned trip to Latin America. Um, I was going to repeat a trip I had done before uh, down through Explorer Mexico for a month or so. And the plan was to go down to Central America again. I had done Belize, Guatemala, and Costa Rica in the past, but I wanted to check off El Salvador and Honduras. And uh, that was the plan. Mm -hmm. So what I normally do in the winter is I throw my bike in the back of my truck. I live in Washington State just to get out of the winter. And I drive down and I leave my truck down in Arizona somewhere. And then I start the trip from there. 
So I did that and I left my uh, truck at a friend's house, crossed the border at um, Nogales, uh, drove for about 12 miles, got all the paperwork done with Bon Caracito, and uh, spent the first night in San Carlos, which is a nice little beach town on the uh, Sea of Cortez. Next day, made it to Alamos and Sinaloa, which was as planned. And then the plan was for the next day to go to Choice, which is also another Pueblo in Sinaloa, and then start what I knew was going to be a fairly challenging 94-mile-long dirt road into Copper Canyon. Mm, and that was part of your adventure. That was the you're looking forward to that. Yeah, that was that was part of the plan. Um, I had done a lot of research. I'd been to Copper Canyon twice before and done some pretty challenging dirt roads, one from Urique to Batupilas. So I wanted to check out this road. I did some research on it. And people said, yeah, it's, it's pretty challenging, but you can do it. One guy said it would take nine hours. Another guy said it would take six hours. And I saw some pictures of it. I thought, you know, I really ought to do this with somebody else to be safe. Mm. So I got on the Motorcycle Mexico Facebook page and actually found somebody that was heading south. And he said he'd meet me in Choice, Sinaloa to do spend that day with me. But then he got COVID and canceled. <sighs> so I thought, well, yeah, I should I should I do this? You know, because <laughs> I heard it so, hey, okay, I can do it. Other people can do it. I can do it. You know, the ego kicks in. <laughs> So, so let's, so before you get into it, let, let's talk about what you're riding and how you're set up. Well, I'm riding a, uh, my previous trips were on a uh, Suzuki V-Strom, but a couple of years ago, I bought a Yamaha T7 Tenere. And I got it set up with all the typical Farkles with the, uh, the bags and, and uh, everything else. Mm -hmm. and, and you have camping um, gear with you? Well, you know, I, I've never, I'm not a real big, I used to camp when I was younger. I'm not a real fan of it, but well, maybe because I'm almost 70 years old might be one reason, <laughs> but, but um, I used to carry camping gear with me just for an emergency and I just never needed it. I was always, no matter how remote of a place I was in Latin America, I've always found a place to stay. Mm. So I, I ditched the camping gear. It was just too much weight and bulk. Right. Um, I, I did bring, you know, I have a destination jacket and a poncho and a tarp just in case. But uh, no, I wasn't planning on camping. I was planning on staying in Bato Pilas, which is a beautiful little Pueblo I'd been to twice before in the bottom of Copper Canyon. Now, you, you did have like sort of a survival setup there, though. You're well, I did. I had, a, uh, I had uh, water with me and some cereal bars just in case. And uh, like I said, a tarp, a poncho and a destination jacket. And you also carry a SATCOM with you? I carry an InReach, which I ended up using, which I'm sure we'll get to. <laughs> I, <laughs> so, you're so, so you're pretty well equipped. Other than the fact that you're going off by yourself, I mean, you're sort of prepared for this. I, I try to prepare for, for everything. You know, maybe, you know, in retrospect, not bringing a nice light sleeping bag was a mistake. But just based on packed experience, I just never figured I'd need it. So, okay. So, so what happens? Well, <sighs> Two people that I had, I had reviewed some videos of people that had done this 94 mile long dirt road through Copper Canyon from Choice and Aloha to Bato Pilas, Chihuahua. And both of them said they ended up getting in at night, which really gave me pause because I have strict rules about driving at night in Latin America. Mm -hmm. it's, I always plan to get in somewhere two hours before sunset. That way, if I get to a little Pueblo and I can't find a place to stay, I've still got some leeway to to find somewhere else. So I figured, all right, I'm going to leave as, as soon as daybreak hits. So th this was mistake number one. I know this is about 
how I got into the situation and how I got out of it. So here's the, here's the, how I got into the situation part. <laughs> so you said you watched videos on this trip. Yeah. There was one guy from Australia that videoed, uh, had a couple hour long video of the same road that was done years ago. So at this point, when you're watching the videos, what are you expecting? What sort of riding conditions? Well, it, it did look a little hairy, although I've done so much quote unquote hairy stuff before without any problems. I guess I got a little overconfident. I mean, I've been to the Arctic Ocean twice. You know, that's like a thousand miles round trip on dirt roads. I've done tons of dirt roads in Argentina and Chile. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe overconfidence was, was one of the things that made, made the decision to continue. Talk about though a, a little hairy or a little crazy. Uh, what, what? Well, just you know, just you know, it's the typical roadrunner style uh, cartoon road with the cliff on one side going up, and then on the other side a cliff going straight down hundreds, if not thousands, of feet into a Oof. canyon. You know, typical, typical. Well, most of the roads in Copper Canyon are like that. That's very typical for Copper Canyon. The thing with the roadrunner is, I mean, they always get yeah. up and dust off. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, there was no dusting off on this trip. Right. Yeah. The dusting off did not occur. <laughs> so you decide to start out early. And that's, of course, to give yourself lots of time and try and get in before dark. Right. A quarter to seven in the morning, I was on the bike getting ready to let the, let the clutch out. Mm. So mistake number one was not having some breakfast. Yeah. So I, I'm out there getting ready to pull out this little courtyard of a real pretty typical little uh, colonial style hotel in Choice, Sinaloa. And the owner comes out and of course it's all in Spanish. Not, not too many people speak English in the rural areas. He says, Hey, you know, I, don't you want breakfast? You know, it comes with the room. I'll make you breakfast. I go, no, I got to get going. I got to take advantage of the light. So he says, well, here, he throws a cup of coffee at me and a big chunk of something real sugary, which was another mistake. <laughs> So all I had on my stomach was this, you know, some kind of a pastry and a cup of coffee. So I, I took off and about the first third of the trip went pretty good. Uh, I was going real slow because there was a lot of deep ruts and a lot of sort of dirt piled high on either side of the ruts. I went down once, you know, I would talk, you know, eight mile an hour kind of thing where the bike just flops over. So I, I picked it up and. And then I went down a second time and, and I'm trying to think, why is this happening? Mm -hmm. I, I really couldn't get my head around it. I mean, I had been done so many thousands of miles up to the Arctic and down in South America. The second time, three guys came by and helped me lift the bike up. And uh, I continued and got about between a third and a half of the way to Batopilas. And I went down again. Uh, the, the, weir, the front wheel washed out in some... some a rut with some high dirt. And now it's trying to get hard to pick up the bike because this is the third time I'm picking the bike up. What sort of time period? Uh, this is probably about three hours into the ride. Mm -hmm. The T7 is a great bike, you know, with the 19-inch uh, front wheel and everything, but it's very top-heavy, which is, in my opinion, one of the negative aspects about the bike. So now I get, I, you know, I'm grunting and groaning and I strain to get the bike up by myself, which I did. And then I come to an intersection and my Garmin XT is saying, go right. And the offline maps on my phone, which I have mounted on the handlebar, is saying, go left. Oh, <laughs> and, and, and this is really confusing. Normally in the past, all my offline navigation maps on my phone have always, always been more correct than the Garmin XT. Without fail, the Garmin XT has steered me wrong many times in my offline navigation whether it's Sigic or Google Maps has always been correct. 
So the Garmin XT, what does it use for a background map? The I, it, I use I use the Garmin XT as a backup, and I use the offline maps on my phone for primary navigation. But the Garmin XT device itself, have you downloaded maps for? Or is it just the base map? Oh well, it uh, well it comes with the North American maps, which include Mexico, the topo map. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I I decided. Well, I've been steered wrong by my Garmin XT XT in the past. I'm going to follow my phone's offline maps. And and after a while, I don't know how to describe it. You just know something's wrong. You know, the hair starts to stand up in the back of your neck. And what do, what do you mean? Because the riding conditions or well, what you see? Well, it's just, you know, the road's starting to get narrower and it looks less traveled. And then you start, you stop seeing ruts, you know, from vehicles anymore. Uh, and I just thought, this isn't right. So I turned around and eventually an hour later got back to the intersection. And then the same thing happened again with another intersection. And what time of day is it now? Oh, well, now that's a good question. Now it's getting to be like three three thirty in the afternoon. Ooh, so it's starting and, starting to get later. And what temperature? Uh, the temperature is down into the forties Fahrenheit now. Mm. And oh, I'm you know I've got a, a heavy climb jacket and everything, but uh, so the whole process of getting to an intersection, getting lost, and backtracking happens again. Now it's getting dark, and I'm thinking this this is not good. So I, of course, I considered turning around and going back. But at that point, being at about the halfway point, the idea of turning around and going back through those those lousy conditions was sort of unthinkable. Yeah, that you've already I, I, fallen a couple of times. I've already, I've already flopped over a couple of times. Right. Nothing bad, but you know, where you got to struggle to pick the bike up. And, sure. And so I'm going, oh man, do I really want to go back through all that stuff? So I, I convinced myself that things were going to get better. And I talked myself into it, which they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> so, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm going and going. I'm finally on the right road. And now I realize that it's the Garmin XT that's correct and not the offline maps on my phone. <sighs> so the, the distance is starting to count down. So I know, okay, I'm getting closer and closer to Batu Pilas. The next thing you know, I went over a fifth time and I had to pick the bike up. And I barely had enough strength to do it. I was so worn out at that point. And next thing you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. And I'm thinking, man, this is, I really should just park my butt here on the side of the road and just wait for daylight. Mm. But the road is so narrow. I'm thinking on the, even on the off opportunity that somebody comes by in a vehicle, I could get run over. Oh, yeah. So I said, ah, man, you know, this violates all my rules about driving at night, but I just had to keep going. So now I'm at a point where I'm only four kilometers from Batopilas. Four clicks. That's it. Two and a half miles. So you can see that on your GPS. You know you're going in the right direction. I can see it on the GPS. And, and I actually, way off of the distance, I can see a little glow of lights off in the canyon, which mm. is Batu Pilas. That's got to feel good. It felt good. So I'm going, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And of course, it's night. And then I'm using my high beams to try to see what's in front of me and dodging rocks and going over flat boulders and through sand and and damn it, if I didn't go down again. Mm. And and I was looking ahead of me, and I guess the front wheel must have hit one of those ruts and washed out. And the bike toppled over into a ditch between the, the wall of the canyon on the road. I went over, and the bike fell on top of me. <sighs> um, and it fell on top of my leg. So now I'm trapped under the bike. The bike is, is on top of you. It's still the running. Bike, uh, the bike is still running. It's on top of me. 
And I, well, of course, the first thing is I got to get my leg out of here. So I, mm-hmm. I pulled and pulled and pulled and this sharp, sharp pain that happened to my left ankle. And I'm still thinking, well, no matter what, I got to get out from another spike. So I just, you know, kind of yelling to myself, just pulled as hard as I could and finally freed my leg out. And then I tried to stand up and my leg collapsed uh, out from under me. Mm. So I realized, well, maybe you just have a twisted angle, you know, I'm <laughs> fooling myself. Right. <laughs> so I'm hopping around. I spend the next hour and a half trying to get the bike out of the ditch. And at one point, I actually was able to finally, by backing up to the bike, pick it up and get it where it's, it's upright. And I, I managed to climb on the bike, uh, started the bike, put it in gear, slowly let the clutch out, and the rear wheel just dug a big hole into the ground in the ditch. And how's your leg feeling at this point? Well, it, it, it's, it's bad. <laughs> it really hurts and I can't put any pressure on it. So do you think it's anything's damaged at this point? Or? I, I, I didn't know. I, I was hoping it was just twisted, but I didn't right. know. Um, I, I leaned over with, on my good side and grabbed some rocks from the side of the cliff and shoved them under the front tire, under the rear tire, trying to get some traction and that didn't work and it just tore up the rear tire. So I turned the bike off and then I said, well, I, but I couldn't put the side stand down because it was on the, you know, my left leg, it was on the left side. I didn't have the strength to do it. Mm. So I'm going, I can't believe I'm going to have to let this bike flop over after all this work, getting it upright again. Oh, right. <laughs> so, but I, I had to get off the bike. So I go, oh, I don't believe this. And I had to let, I put the bike back on its side again. So then I said, well, I guess I'm just going to have to wait till daylight and hope somebody comes by. Well, this was mistake number, well, maybe mistake number two or three, depending how you're counting them. (laughs) But I had brought a a poncho and a tarp and a destination jacket and a long undershirt and some extra cereal bars and some water. But all those were packed on the left side of the bike and the bike was on its left side. and I couldn't get to them. What kind of panniers? Uh, They're the... um, a uh, giant loop around the world panniers. Right. So you, so you'd yeah. actually have to get in there and get the buckles undone. Yeah. But there was the, the panniers were trapped between the bike and the ground. Right. So, <laughs> so. so I just, it's something I had never thought of, you know, if there's something you really, really would need emergency access to put it on the top of the, put it on the back seat. Yeah. It's just, I just never occurred to me. So, and then I tried to reach where the water was and it was in a plastic container. And in one of those get offs, the, the top of the container had flown off. So I had no water. So no water, no clothes to be comfortable. At least that I could get to. <laughs> yeah. How, how are you feeling at that point? Do you well, think it, about to when you were there? Well, I'm start, it's starting to get really cold. The last time I looked at the temperature readout on the uh, Tenere's dash, it was 35 Fahrenheit. Mm. So now it's, I don't know, it's somewhere around freezing. Mm-hmm. So I figured, well, I'm just going to have to wait here. So I tried to lay, lay down on the dirt on the side of the road and uh, put a rock and, my, and some gloves under my head. And then um, my, head, my legs started to hurt more and more and more. And then I started shaking from the cold. So then I realized, well, I got this Garmin inReach thing. <laughs> so I took it out and I looked at it. You know, that's one of the things you go, well, you're going to carry this just in case. But then in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, that'll never really happen. Yeah, you'll never use it. No, it's just one of those things you're supposed to carry with you, right? Right. So I looked at it and I said, oh my God, am I really going to press the button on this thing? I just, I just couldn't believe it. 
We're going to take a quick break while I tell you about a couple of things. When we come back, the rest of the story. Stay with us. Canadian Adventures has been guiding motorcycle trips for 13 years, over 13 years now. Before that, Rene Cormier, the owner of Renadian, uh, he was doing his own round-the-world trip. He did it on $25 a day. He wrote a book about it called University of Gravel Roads. Great book. Today, Renadian Adventures trips, they're largely selected from places that Rene fell in love with on his round-the-world trip. These are places that Rene says feature big landscapes with not many people. And much of that is in Africa. And Renee says their Africa trips are the most vacation-y of their guided tours with nice adventures during the day and lots of comfort at night. And that riders that are new to international touring will find Africa as a great starting destination. He also says that the trips are pillion friendly, meaning not only are the roads okay for pillions, but also the itineraries are built so that there's activities and sceneries for them as well. And he says that as always in Africa, there's a chase truck that follows the group uh, in case a pillion needs a break from the bike or has something go wrong, you know, just for any reason at all. And he says every year there's a spouse who attends the trip only in the chase van. So they, they want to see the sites. They want to see Victoria Falls. They want to go on safari, stay in luxury lodges, things like that. But they have no interest in doing that from the back of the motorcycle. So they ride in the chase van, which is really cool. They, um, they use upscale boutique style accommodations. They ride predominantly BMW motorcycles. They have new bikes for rent. They've got a full-time Renadian crew based in Cape Town to help with planning. The routes can be all paved with sections of gravel. Rene also says that Africa is safe to travel because they, he says they, they ride in rural areas and they spend the nights in really upmarket lodges. I mean, Africa, let's face it, so many riders talk about how incredible Africa is a riding destination. So many people say that it, it's a place that you go to and it just keeps drawing you back. I mean, I hear this all the time. Unforgettable adventures by day and recharge in ultimate comfort by night. Renadian.com is the website. That's Renadian is from his name, Rene, and the fact that he's Canadian, Renadian, get it? Anyway, Renadian.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Renadian.com. The whole point of an adventure motorcycle is to be able to take you long distances to places that you can then ride into some tough stuff, challenging your skills, enjoying the scenery, and most of all, of course, adventure. But even on an adventure bike, those long distances can be a little much for your wrist, your arm, your shoulder, throttle hand, I mean. Holding your wrist locked in one position for a while is fatiguing. But there is a device that is very popular with adventure riders and street riders for that matter, and that is the Atlas Throttle Lock. The Atlas Throttle Lock was invented and designed by riders just like us, David and Heidi Winters, when they were doing their round-the-world trip, two up on a KTM. This little device, the Atlas Throttle Lock, to begin with, is a stunning piece of machinery. So well-designed and manufactured. It's ultra-thin. It clamps onto your handlebars in minutes. But what impresses me even more than the way it looks and it does look really good, is how it works. It's got two buttons on it. And right in line with sort of Apple quality and design type thing, these two buttons provide a tactile feedback for your thumb, so you do not have to look at it to see what you're doing. This is really important. The feel tells all. 
one button to engage, the other for disengage. You simply press the button and your throttle position is held in place. That way you can relax your wrist, your arm, your elbow, your shoulder. The difference is absolutely huge. And if you need to add a little more throttle or roll a little off, that's all you do. You just roll a little on, roll a little off. You don't need to disengage. It slips it and then holds the new position. It's utterly simple to use, yet it's absolutely fantastic how much it changes your ride. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. And are you worried at that point? I mean, because you're starting to shake that. You mean you're starting to get hypothermic, really? You're on your way to hypothermia. Uh, I'm getting hypothermic. My leg is is hurting really, really badly. And I plus, I'm thinking, well, I could tough it out till daylight, but even four kilometers from Bato Pilas, this is a very, I had only seen two cars in the last, you know, 13 hours or so. Mm-hmm. If somebody, I could be a couple of days before somebody comes by. Yeah. So I said, oh, I can't believe this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to press the button. <laughs> so, so talk about pressing that button. What does it entail? Uh, well, it's just, um, you, you, you turn the device on and then there's an emergency button on it that you press. There, and there is all communication is via text with an emergency coordination center in the U.S. Um, there is a way to slowly type out a text message using the Garmin inReach device itself, but it's very cumbersome. Mm-hmm. So if I had thought about that before I left, and I downloaded an app called Garmin EarthMate, which allows you to Bluetooth connect your phone with the Garmin inReach so you can actually type the text on your phone instead of having to do it laboriously with the inReach. And especially when you're stressed, and in this case, you're cold right. and it's dark. Right. And yeah, yeah. It makes I can't sense. imagine having to type out messages just using the inReach itself. That would have been ridiculous. Yeah, because that's where you're choosing your letter, right? You're going through choose a letter and then go oh, to the next oh letter. And yeah, you scroll next letter, next letter. Yeah. So anyway, the Bluetooth thing with the Garmin EarthMate, it worked really well. So I hit the button and what seemed like forever it was probably, you know, time slowing down because of everything happening. Sure. About five or seven minutes later, I got a message that said, tell us your situation. What's your emergency? So I said, I'm stuck in a ditch. I'm about, I'm only about four kilometers from Bato Pilas in, in uh, Chihuahua, Mexico. Uh, I've damaged my leg and uh, I need someone to come out if they possibly, you can possibly find someone. But it was like five or 10 minutes between the time I would send the message and the time I would receive a message. And is there something on there that tells you that it's sent and received? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think it's like a normal text where you you hit the, the little enter icon and it says it was sent. Yeah, mm-hmm. like like a regular text. But it's on the Garmin Earth, EarthMate app. Yeah. And... Um, so they finally said, make sure your antenna is pointing at the sky. And but this time I'm getting frustrated and I said, my blank, blank, blank antenna is pointed at the sky. <laughs> <laughs> Communications so, are definitely breaking down at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so um, they said, okay, we're going to try to find help. So they got back with me about 10 minutes later and said, we've contacted some local Mexican police, but they refused to come out until daylight. And I'm thinking, well, I guess there's not much I can do. I also have to wait till daylight. And they said, uh, are you okay? Do you have shelter? And I said, no, no, and no. But there's nothing I can do about it, so <laughs> I'll wait. Mm-hmm. 
So about an hour goes by and now my leg is, is really, I can feel it swelling up inside the boot and, and I'm kind of shaking uncontrollably. So I said, I'm doing this again. I hit the button a second time. So from the first communication, you had your conversation with them. And as far as they're concerned, they've sort of passed it off. You're going to be rescued in the morning. You're just going to have to tough it out for the night. Right, exactly. And then it's done at that point. It's done at that point. So a couple hours go by. Now it's about, I don't know, 3.30 in the morning, something like that. And I realized this is not a good situation. So I, I hit the button the second time and they come back and they said, all right, we're going to try to contact somebody again. Now, did they ask you to state your emergency and everything, or they know it's you? And no, they oh, they know it's me because right. we had already established communication. So, I, I I waited about a half an hour, and all of a sudden, off of the distance, I heard the sound of a vehicle, and I looked, I peered over the side of the Roadrunner cliff there, and <laughs> and I saw some lights slowly winding up the canyon from from the valley. But sure enough, about ten minutes later, an SUV pulls up with three Mexican cops and uh, they had been woken up in the, in the middle of the night and um, they, they pulled the bike out of the ditch. Uh, they put the bike on the, on the, on the side stand. They said, get on the bike and ride into town. I said, Whoa, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I, you know, I, I'm hopping around on one foot and we're picking up all my stuff and throwing them back in the bags. And they said, we have to continue going away from town because there's nowhere to turn around. We're going to have to go for quite a ways before we find a place to turn around. Oh, it's that tight. They can't even turn a vehicle around in this room. No, there was, no, there's no way. They would have gone right off the edge of the cliff trying to, trying to do a three-point turn. Oh. So at, at that point, I tried to get on the bike and my leg collapsed under me. So they literally picked me up and put me on the bike. And they said... Drive into town, wait for us in the plaza. We got to find a place to turn around. This is all in Spanish, of course. So thank God I've been studying the language. We got to find a place to turn around. So I said, well, can't you follow me? They said, well, we don't know when we're going to be back here. It could be a long time. So I just sucked it up and said, okay, Joe, you can do this. <laughs> so I put all my weight on my right foot. Uh, they reached down and put the bike in first gear for me. And I just said a prayer and uh, slowly worked my way down the the uh, switchbacks and made it without toppling over again. You made it the whole way down. I made it the, the, the rest of the two and a half miles, four clicks. Yeah. Your leg is hurting. You make legs it back. hurting. I mean, it's got to feel good. When you saw those cops, what was that feeling? Oh, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. So uh, they said, wait for him in the plaza. I get to the plaza at about four in the morning and I wait and wait and wait. They don't show up. And finally, I can't take it anymore. So there's a place there called Juanita's Hotel, which a lot of your ADV riders that have been through Batu Pilas, Copper Canyon, I'm sure are familiar with. Mm -hmm. she's, she's kind of a famous icon down there. She has a hotel where you drive through her living room down into a courtyard and you store your bike in, a, in this beautiful courtyard on the river. And right. Very popular among ADV riders. There's only a couple hundred people living in the Pueblo, but a lot of people go there. So I, I'm, now I start pounding on the door of the hotel at four in the morning, yelling in Spanish, uh, I'm an American. I've been in a motorcycle accident. I'm hurt. I need a room. Can you please help me? <laughs> and I'm pounding on the door for about 10 minutes. Finally, this 15 or 16-year-old girl gets dressed and comes down. And uh, I talk to her and, and, and she... She helps me uh, put my bike in their little foyer and I get a room. 
And uh, there's no hot water, so I take my clothes off and I'm standing under a freezing cold shower. Mm. And I fall asleep for about two hours. And then I wake up and I figure, well, I got to get some medical attention somehow. So I hop on one foot across the plaza to the little police station there. And uh, they, I said, is there a hospital here? So they, they drove, drive me six blocks to what was really just a tiny little clinic with some band-aids on the shelves and, and not much else. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there was a woman there from the Tarahumara tribe. That's the indigenous Indians that live in Copper Canyon. Mm-hmm. And she had fallen and broken her hip. So they put her and me in a van and they drove us to another little pueblo called Samachique which is about an hour away, climbing out of the canyon. So I'm sitting in this van, and we finally get to this tiny little pueblo called Samachique. I get out, and I'm hopping towards this little building, and this guy comes out in perfect English and says, Hey, bud, how's it going? And I said, What? (laughs) I hadn't spoken to English for four days at this point. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there's a if I can put a little plug in for him, there's a little, there's a Christian charity organization called Mexico Medical that sets up these little clinics around Copper Canyon and Chihuahua to help the Tamahuara tribe. No way. And, and he is a nurse practitioner from Texas uh, named Walt that volunteers three months of his uh, time every year helping out the Tamahuara tribe there in that wow. little tiny clinic. Three months? Yeah. He spends Man. three months in Samachique, uh, every winter doing this. So, um, and by the way, it's mexicomedical.org if any ADV writers want to do a contribution for this organization. Yeah. But, um, so they actually had a little x-ray machine there. It looked like something out of a Flash Gordon movie from the 1950s, but it, <laughs> the old film and everything. And so they took a picture. They showed me a picture of not just a broken ankle, but a green stick shattered broken ankle. Ooh, don't talk about that green stick. Well, that just means it's not a clean break. It's like, you know, splintered. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty nasty situation you find yourself in. Yeah. So they they said, we, we don't have any narcotics. We don't have any pain medication. We can't afford them. But they gave me a cane and a plastic boot. So I get in their, their little van and I drive. They take me an hour back to Bado Pilas. And I figure at this point, I've got to get back to the United States. That's just foremost on my mind. You're not going to get this fixed in Mexico, you're thinking? Well, I, 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 I just was focused on get home, get home, get home, get mm-hmm. back to the U.S. I, I got a, a WhatsApp message from Walt, that nurse practitioner, a couple hours after I got back to Bado Pilas saying, if you can make it back here tomorrow, the doctor will be here. We can have a consult and then set you up later on in the week in Chihuahua, which is a major, major city in the, in the state of Chihuahua, Mexico, that has a modern hospital. But that would be another two-hour round trip to Samachique and then wait a day or two and then eight hours somehow to get to Chihuahua to have surgery. Mm, and how far is it for you to go back home, like to get to the States? Well, from Chihuahua, I, w- I probably would have had surgery and flown home. But then I got this motorcycle this Yamaha Tenere sitting in Bado Pilas for God knows how long. Right. And, you know, that pr- itself presents all kinds of problems because when you bring a motorcycle into Mexico, you have to get something called a TIP, a temporary import permit. Mm-hmm. And if you don't bring that vehicle out of Mexico, 
you can never bring a vehicle back into Mexico again. So I figured, you know, I got to get this bike out of the, out of the country too. So he sends me this text and I'm looking at that. So I go to this little store because I figured I'm going to have to pay somebody to, to drive me a couple days to get back to Arizona. So I talked this woman in this tiny little store into giving me about $1,500 in Mexican pesos on my credit card, well, which she, she did. And as I'm waiting for her to do all the preparations to get me some cash, this guy walks into the store and tells me in Spanish, Hola, Joe, que anda cometeba, which means basically, hey, what's the wave? How's it going? What's the wave is kind of a greeting in Spanish. And he called me by my name. And I look up and it's a guy that owns a restaurant in Batupilas that I had met four years ago when I was there. He's a biker. And four years ago, his family had invited me over to their house to have dinner with them after their restaurant closed. <laughs> he remembers your and, name and everything. And he re well, you know, when something like this happens, it's a Pueblo of just a couple hundred people. It's big news and everybody knows about it. So he, he heard that there's some gringo that had been in an accident and he's running around trying to find him. And he finds me and he recognizes me. Hmm. I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so he, he tells me, look, if we can agree upon a price, I will drive you back to the United States. Wow. And I said, well, how much? <laughs> Not that it really mattered because <laughs> I would have paid anything. But he said, well, it's going to be a four-day trip for me, a, a two-day trip for you. How about 1300 U.S. dollars? And I said, done. <laughs> you know, now, is, I this, is this bringing your bike? Yeah, with the bike. Yeah. Oh, I see. So he had a pickup truck. So I said, in addition to that, I said, I'm going to pay all your expenses because we're, we're going to need a hotel and food and gas. And mm -hmm. so he says, all right, we'll get out of here tomorrow. So he takes me, he picks me up at my little hotel there, drives me two blocks to his restaurant, made sure I was fed. We had breakfast the next morning. He says, give me the keys to your bike. I gave him the keys. He drives off with the bike, comes back half an hour later with the bike all loaded up and strapped down on the back of his pickup truck. Wow. And we, t and we take off and we drive two days through um, Chihuahua and Sonora. Stayed at a hotel in Nueva Casa Grandes overnight. And uh, he had a, a U.S. tourist visa for some, some reason. I don't know why. So we stopped off at the Bonjercito in Agua Prieta on the border. And I, I got the bike signed out of Mexico correctly. And we drove across and stopped at a McDonald's in Douglas, Arizona. And I had previously arranged for my friend where my truck was parked at his house three hours away to come out and meet me. So my friend drives three hours with his truck and trailer, meets us in Douglas, Arizona. Uh, we They transload the bike to his truck and trailer. He drives me back to his house in Tubac, Arizona. Him and his son load my bike onto my truck that's been sitting there. I got on my truck and I drove an hour to the emergency room in Tucson, Arizona. Stumbled in three or four days after the accident and said, it's taken me three days out of Mexico. I have a broken leg. <laughs> and, they, and they said, that's fine. Have a seat. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you expect there's going to be this big welcoming committee after yeah, everything you've right. been through, you know, and everything. And <laughs> Look what this poor guy's been through. Let's get him in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. Have a seat. <laughs> so you're sitting there waiting in the lineup for triage. I'm sitting there with a broken leg for three and a half hours waiting to get triaged. <laughs> and they finally got me into the hospital. Finally got some painkillers into me because I had basically nothing for 
for almost, you know, like three and a half days. And, um, they, then they did surgery on me the next day and the rest of the long story short, two days later, a friend of mine jumps on an airplane and flies down from Seattle to Tucson, jumps in an Uber, comes to the hospital, picks me up. We, we jump in my truck and my friend drives me two and a half days back to Washington state. <laughs> So, you know, right off the top, I can see with this, you know, for this sort of thing to happen, you're going to need a little bit of extra cash and you're going to need a lot of friends. Well, the, there was kind of two, uh, two angels there, that Texan guy in, uh, <laughs> in Samachike. Mm -hmm. And uh, although I can, I can speak the language, it was sure nice to be able to speak English with somebody for in a situation like that. And that guy, um, his, his name is Don uh, Hernandez Vasquez that I had met four years ago. So that was my second guardian angel. I carry a lot of cash. I normally on my trips carry about $4,000 in U.S. cash hidden around myself and the bike just in case. And sure enough, the just in case worked this time. Just to cover that. So I remember you, you said, I think, I think you said mountains of cash or something like that. Yeah. Right. And, and I didn't think it was that much of a mountain, but um, so, but and that's over and above like credit cards then, right? Yeah, well, I carry, I have like seven or eight credit cards in case one of them doesn't work or in case there's a huge medical bill. I carry local cash. I carry U.S. cash. It's just, I'm always prepared for that kind of thing. And the point is, though, the reason that you have that kind of cash is so that if something goes wrong like this did, you can just throw the cash at it. You don't care. It's just exactly get it done. Exactly. You, you know, you do also carry insurance, right? You, you always have a medical insurance. I, I did. And this was, um, this was a screw up on my part. I did the, contacting the insurance, the medical insurance company that I contracted with during when all this was happening didn't even occur to me. So after I finally got home and and, and got things settled after a couple of days, I said, "Well, I better start thinking about getting some reimbursement for all my expenses." Mm -hmm. So I spent nine hours filling out a claim form on the insurance website, and everything was denied because I hadn't contacted them before I started making preparations down there. Wow. And I, I looked in the fine print and sure enough, it says before making any arrangements, you have to contact us. And it's just that that just did not occur to me when I was down there. So when you're out there in the dark, in the cold, in the ditch with the bike on your leg, you're supposed to what? Text the insurance company then? And or at say, least at least maybe the next day, you know, before I made arrangements to, to pay money to him and, and do all this stuff. I suppose I, I should have contacted him, but it just did not occur to me. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, well, of course, it's being deep trouble. I mean, we want to go back and sort of go through this. And I know you pointed out some things that you've already learned uh, anyway. But but right back to the very start, when you're looking at this 94-mile all-dirt road, you looked at the videos, and you, you said the road w was challenging. You you considered, I mean, even the way you spoke about it said something about the uh, the difficulty of the road. So what do you think of that now as far as tackling those types of things? Well, I'm not going to do it again. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. If I have any pause at all, if I, you know, that like the old expression is, if the hair is standing up in the back of your neck, it's standing up for a reason. Yeah. If I start, if I have any pause about something or if I have starting to have second thoughts about a certain road, I'm just not going to do it anymore. <laughs> but it does make you wonder if you didn't make it through that 94 mile, even if it was difficult, even if you dropped the bike several times and you made it through, if you would think the same way. You mean if I had, if I had made it? Yeah. That's a very good question. Um, after, you know, thousands of miles, like I said, a couple Arctic Ocean trips, 
Costa Rica, Guatemala, Chile, Argentina without hardly having any problems. Maybe if I had made it, I wouldn't have learned the lesson and I would have done it again. But like you say, now I think I've, I, I'm learning. I don't, I don't think I'm going to be doing much off-road anymore south of the border in my Latin American trips. Mm-hmm. Maybe if it's a really nice, perfectly graded something. But if anything is in remotely challenging, I'm just going to save that for my U.S. and Canada stuff. I don't think I'm going to be doing much of that off-road. Plus, I'm pushing 70. So <laughs> although I work out, I don't have the strength I used to have. It's all like it's a wake-up call, isn't it? And, and I think we all do this. It is a wake-up we, call. we all sort of, you know, push our luck here and there. And and you're kind of lucky to get a wake-up call that you just, lit, well, no pun intended, but walked away from. Well, you know, it, instead of four kilometers from Batopilas, it could have happened 40 kilometers from Batopilas. Yeah. And in that case, they probably would have gotten somebody out there because, you know, that rescue center or whatever you want to call it in the U.S. has got my exact GPS location. But... It, it very well may have been that I never would have gotten a bike out of there. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, I would never would have been able to bring up a, a bike or a car back into Mexico again, ever. That would have been the end of my Latin, my Latin America trip. Well, I think you can explain to the authorities what happened and if you can give, uh, you know, a police report. I you think- know, I, I've heard that and I had a Mexican friend try to look into that for me. And apparently the process is so extensive that a lot of people just throw their arms up and give up. Oh, is that right? With you know, pictures and police reports. And I, 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 I guess in theory, there is some way of doing it, but I wouldn't want to go down that road. Not to mention the loss of a Yamaha T7. Yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a lot more money down the tubes. But l- so let's go back. You said at one point, I think you said you were about halfway. You you got lost because of the GPS twice. And at the, at the like some, somewhere around halfway, you decided to keep going rather than turn back because you knew it was behind you. What do you think of that decision now? Well, now, 2020 hindsight, it may have been better to turn back. But but at the time, already have gone the wrong way twice, I figured, well, now I'm going to have to get to those intersections again. And given my unreliable GPS, it's possible I can end up going the wrong way again. Plus, I'd already toppled over a couple times and I didn't want to go through that again. So at the time, my decision seems rational. Mm-hmm. In 2020 hindsight now, it's, it's, it's probable that if I had gone back, I would have made it back to Choice in Sinaloa and then just replanned my route in Mexico down towards Central America. You do record a breadcrumb trail on your GPS, correct? Um, it's on there. I suppose that probably would have worked. Yeah. Yeah. That's very important. And, and I, mm-hmm. in my mind, I always think it's good to have it displayed just for those reasons. Yeah. There is an app on the XT where you can... You can, you can, I think it might even be called breadcrumb or something like that. Where yeah. Where you'll track. say backtrack. I think it's, it's right, on, exactly. on that one. I think the, the feature is backtrack, but it's really nice to have it on the screen so that. But I had can, already gone the wrong way a couple of times. So I would have backtracked following those two wrong directions again. Right. But, but you can zoom out <laughs> and you, you can zoom out and see where you've went off. Yeah. But, but I'm just saying, so, so that's possible for you. But what I'm thinking is now though, now when you approach a spot like that, the, the thought process, like, you know, if you did it again tomorrow sort of thing and you're, you're somewhere and you're at the halfway point, would you look at it differently? Because like, I know I, like I have the same thing and I've run into the same sort of some thing where you went through so much tough stuff and you think, I don't want to go backwards through all that. I just don't want to do it. I'd rather right. sort of risk what's ahead of me. And of course you have no idea. And I'm just wondering if it doesn't make sense when we get to that point 
if you you think about it, you think at least the the way back is a known quantity. A known versus the unknown. Yeah. That's exactly right. And 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 now that's probably something I would probably pay a lot more consideration to. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely you're right. Yeah. It's a thought process anyway, because I, but it's tough to do. It is is definitely tough to do. The the emergency beacon that you had with you and, and the communication. When you said it was slow, did, did you have any sort of uh, any sort of feeling for why it was so slow? Uh, I have a satellite communication. I, I, that's a good question. Um, of course, what may have seemed like ten minutes to me was maybe like five minutes, because you know, in in situations like this, time yeah. time slows down. But I know it was at least five minutes from the time uh, that I sent a message to when I would receive a reply. Mm. I, why, what the uh, technical aspects of that is, I have no idea. But I got the impression from them telling you to make sure your antenna is pointed at the sky. They're right. seeing a delay that seems somewhat unusual. Uh, possible. Yeah. Where was possible. your device itself? Oh, I always keep it right in my, in my jacket pocket because I knew that if you get separated from your bike, you, you want it with you and not having of to course. crawl over to a bike and try to dig it out from somewhere. Yeah, because if you were pinned there, for instance, and, and it's on the handlebar, that could be horrible. Right. Exactly. You know, exactly. Just be on, on reach. Um, no, that the jacket I have actually has a pocket built in for those things. There was another thing that you said in there that, that I thought was just great, and you had already, you already pointed out and talked about it, but I want to sort of revisit it. It was where you're storing your emergency gear. Well, I'm not going to do that again. It, it, <laughs> this time, something that I know I'm absolutely going to have to have, like cereal bars and water and a destination jacket and a tarp and a poncho are going to be stored, strapped down to the back seat instead of on the side of the bike where it can get trapped. That's a really good insight. And, and that's something, I mean, who's going to think of that in advance? I just never thought, I did not think of it. No, but you want it somewhere that's easy to get and also easy to get off. So it can't be really strapped down or buried in anything. Well, you could put all that stuff under one of those blue nets and a couple straps, and I think it would be yeah. And that doesn't really weigh much. It's not like you're increasing the top heaviness of the bike for just a, a tarp and a poncho and some cereal bars and a destination jacket. That doesn't weigh anything. In that situation, what would you have, or what should you have had? You think, or what would have made you comfortable to stay there for the night? A sleeping bag, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I had stopped carrying those a couple trips ago just because I just never, ever needed them. Yeah. And that's understandable. Uh, and it gets kind of like a first aid kit. You know, you never need the first aid kit, but you do have to keep carrying it with you and you've got to sort of weigh it up. Do you want to downgrade, you know, get to take a smaller first aid kit? And I, I don't know if there's a right or wrong really, but everybody has to sort of live with their, their own decisions on this. Right. Right. Um, would a sleeping bag be part of your, your kit now? Yes, it will be. Plus, it doesn't weigh anything. Yeah. It's not, you know, weight is, is everything on these trips, as I'm sure you know. And, you know, that's what are you talking, a few ounces for a, or maybe a pound for a sleeping bag. Yeah, and you can really pack, like some of these sleeping bags you can get now, you can pack them down so tight. Right, exactly. Mm. What other things did you learn with this? What other things that I learned? Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get through my head why I went down as many times as I did. Um, after having done so many thousands of miles off-road in challenging conditions, why did I keep flopping over mm. as many times as I did? And, and I'm trying to get my head around it, but, but I think what I learned is make sure before you start a day like this that you've done everything right. Get a good night's sleep. Eat a good breakfast. You know, make sure that you've got stuff accessible to you. Um, if it's high altitude and it's cold, take that under consideration. 
don't just, you know, go launching off at the first thing in the morning because you're worried about enough daylight without making sure you're prepared physically and mentally for it. That That's a big wake up call. That for makes me. sense. Yeah. You also said at the start how you watched the videos and, and it concerned you that each one of those got in at night. Yes. I, I had, I had, I guess I talked myself into saying, well, those guys just didn't get started early enough. I won't let that happen to me. So whether that was the case or not, I don't know. But my excuse was, well, I'll just make sure I get started at daybreak. Mm-hmm. So, but it still didn't work. And in hindsight, you should have left it like three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. But, uh, <laughs> That's probably not <laughs> something to learn in this. And that wouldn't make sense. Yeah. Another thing I forgot to mention is when I told you that the Mexican cops refused to come out the first time. At first, I was I was kind of upset about that, obviously. And, you know, I was thinking, oh, what a bunch of worthless so-and-sos. But the more I think about it, um, I know I'm backtracking here, but I, I think I can understand their point of view now. But number one, it's very well known that that whole region is is ruled by the cartels. They, they, they don't, they don't bother American gringo motorcyclists. They, that's just not an issue, but I, I'm sure that the Mexican cops there are just really just figureheads. They don't really do much, if anything. And I'm sure the cartels have probably let, let it be known to them that you, we don't want you gallivanting around outside of Battle Pilas on the dirt roads at night. Stay out of our territory. Mm, right. That's, that's one possibility. Another possibility is, um, that's, they don't want to be driving up a road that looks like something out of a Roadrunner cartoon at night because <laughs> yeah. they could go off the edge. So they may have been worried about their own safety. So when if you have to use a device like the Garmin inReach or something, realize that the people that are going to come out and help you might have their own challenges. And, it, it, you know, it, it might not happen right away. So... That's, that's something else I learned that just by pressing that button doesn't mean poof, magic, everybody's there and off you go and you're all taken care of. Well, even the way you described the, the, the center, the uh, rescue center contacting the local police, I mean, they, they've got to work through this and then try and convince these local police that they really should go out. And I think that's what happened the second time. They said, look, please, you've got to get going out, out there. Yeah. And to your point about their perspective, their other perspective could be as well as well. I mean, this green goes out at night and gets himself exactly. in trouble. I mean, doesn't he deserve to wait till the morning? And, and why isn't it? Why? How is this our problem? Right. right. Like, and, it, and that obviously isn't what you did, but it did. But it can sound like that from their end. They just get this yes. message and go, oh, well. I, actually, that was the third thing I thought of, but I, it sounded a little impolite. So I didn't bring it up. But, <laughs> but, but that's, that's, it, you know, the cartel issue one, the, the gringo issue two, and the, the danger of the road three. So I can, I can kind of understand now why they maybe reacted as, as they did. Yeah. And it sounds like, obviously, you said the road's really treacherous. I mean, if they had to keep going because they can't turn around, that's a pretty treacherous road to be driving at night. Right, exactly. In pitch black. Anything else you learned on this? Uh, well, I think pretty much covered it. Get yourself prepared mentally and physically before you do something like this. Number one, number two, even if the idea of turning around seems almost impossible to, to, to think of, you might want to still think about doing it and don't, don't assume that things are going to get better just because you're continuing in the same direction. Uh, number three, if you ever in a situation where you have to do push that button, don't assume that instantaneously help's going to arrive and the problem's over with. Mm-hmm. It, you know, there's all kinds of, oh, and number four, pack your damn stuff where you can get to it. <laughs> yes. 
Um, I guess one more thing is is the language thing. You know, I I know it's, you know, I've been spending about ten to fifteen hours a week for six years learning Spanish, and I know that's a lot to ask of people mm-hmm. just because they're going south. But if if just do something, make some kind of an attempt, even if you're writing down phrases in a book or something, because it just makes such a difference being able to communicate with people. Even if it's on a, you know, I, I can carry on a normal conversation, but even if you just get yourself to a basic level, it's, I think it's worth the effort. That would be one more thing I'd want to add. Because even when those guys are telling you they have to go forward and turn around, if you don't understand anything they're saying, that could be just terrifying. What's what's I I wouldn't have had a clue. I wouldn't have had a clue. What, what, what's going on? Where are they going? What, you know, that, but I was able to communicate perfectly with them. Okay. I understand. Yes. But even a basic level, if you could just understand some basic words, you probably would have been able to pick up the gist of that. And that would make that. Like the word, you know, tenemos que regresar. We have to return something like just some basic words. If you understood those might make a difference. Yeah, good point. Well, Joe, I want to thank you very much for sharing your story so openly and honestly and and allowing everyone to learn from what you've learned. It's helpful to everyone who listens to this. So thank you so much. And, And I really enjoyed doing it. It was a lot of fun to go through it with you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was real fun. So to recap a few things from Joe's story that we could learn, riding alone increases your risk. That's an obvious one. Preparing for the possibilities, the more we prepare, the better our chance of having at least an easier outcome if things go wrong. For instance, day trips often have the potential to become overnighters. Are you prepared for an overnighter if the potential exists? GPS. The GPS, it's a valuable piece of equipment. There's no doubt about it, but it's not the panacea for all navigation. And most If not all GPSs can show your track, that's the line showing where you've been. And having that track live all the time can be a huge asset, particularly if you have to turn around and retrace part of the route. You can at least see where you might have detoured, like in Joe's case, you can see the detour go off and then see it come back around and you can avoid doing that. If you just tell the GPS to backtrack, it'll take you on that route. So looking at that track is very important. Of course, your SATCOM on your body is key but also having your safety gear where you can easily get at it. Most times, maybe not all, but most times when our bikes go down, they lay on one side or the other. Joe's story highlighted that thought process of ensuring at least those important items are perhaps stored in a better place, a bag or a box up on top. That goes for your first aid kit, medications as well. That story was from Joe Siegel from his Fox Island home in Washington State. Now we've got some photos from Joe's adventure in the show notes at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Now we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to leave Mexico. We're going to head up to Vancouver Island, Canada and speak with a fellow named Dave Rogers. Now Dave lives on the northern section of Vancouver Island. By the way, Vancouver Island's off the west coast of Canada for those who can't place it. Now there's not a lot of people on the northern part of Vancouver Island, but there's almost an endless spider web of logging roads to explore. And in this story, Dave finds himself on one of those logging roads, pinned down by his Moto Guzzi. Stay with us. Standing on your foot pegs gives you more control over your motorcycle, using your body to maneuver your bike. Watch any great rider. You're going to see them transfer their weight forward, back, lean side to side, bend their knees, all on their foot pegs. Standing offers tons of advantages. And when you stand, the only solid connection you have with your motorcycle is between your boots and your foot pegs, or at least it should be, and it will be if you have IMS Products foot pegs. It's a night 
and day difference. Grip, contact control, the wider platform gives you more leverage, leverage to get the bike to do what you want, and the larger platform is more comfortable standing and sitting. IMS Products has been making parts for riders like us since 1976, and they pour everything into their complete line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs from the large ADV 1s and 2s, which are perfect for fire roads and mile after mile on the roads, right on down to their core Enduros for the more aggressive off-road orientated rider. IMS has a peg to suit your style. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. David Rogers. I'm about to turn 66. I, I'm a motorcycle enthusiast. Uh, I've owned 50 bikes. I've got at least five or 600,000 kilometers riding motorcycles under my belt. I'm retired and I'm a winter. David, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. Where are you when this happened? What, what was what were you doing that day? Well, I'd actually gone for a ride that was it was advertised. I say advertised because I found out about it on Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, our local North Island dual purpose riding site. This is Vancouver Island, Canada. Yes, Vancouver Island, North Tip, like North Tip. It's the end of the road on Vancouver Island. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, it was advertised, I'm using finger quotes, as a beginner ride on gravel road, gravel logging road. And I called a buddy of mine because he also has a, an adventure bike. And, and so we went and we met the guys and they said, yeah, it's a beginner ride and da, 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 da. So off we go and, you know, we're ripping down this logging road and there's dust and the, the guys leading the ride, they're in the front. Like, there's no tail dragger. Anyway, I'm not going to slam them. <laughs> oh, I see I what guess, you're saying. I guess you're I saying, already have. <laughs> they're, so all, all the powers that be knows where you're going and everything. They're all at the front. They didn't bother with a sweep rider. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, right. Yeah. And and they're ripping down the road. There's there's dust. There's, there's sharp corners. There's off-camber corners, you know, where there's a drop-off and a rock wall. Like, this is not a beginner ride, is what I'm trying to say. Mm. And this is a remote area that you're riding in, is it? Oh, God, yeah. 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 Like, we're, we're out in the middle of nowhere. There is zero cell service. It's on a weekend, so there isn't going to be another vehicle come along till Monday morning because we're on a logging road. So we go around, we go around the top of the mountain, and we come back down to almost civilization. And we're back on the pavement and they're about to take off on another gravel logging road. And I go, yeah, um, I've got to go. <laughs> so, you're uh, saying that because you've sort of had enough of this, this style ride. Yeah. Hanging on to the tail of the donkey, you might say. Mm. Yeah. So uh, I wave goodbye to my buddy and, and uh, off they go. And uh, I start heading home and I'm on the pavement. And, but, but it's still classed as a logging road. So in front of me is Port McNeil. Behind me is Telegraph Cove. And um, 
I'm on this logging road and I'm headed towards Port McNeil and I go ripping past this baseball cap that someone has, has dropped. And I go, oh, well, it looks like a nice baseball cap. It's kind of camo colored. So I turn around and I go, you know, and it's on, it's on a hill going up. So I'm climbing this hill when I went, when I went past it. Mm-hmm. So I turn around, come back down past the ball cap again, and I, and I come up almost level with it. And I put my, my bike, which is a uh, 2023 Moto Guzzi V85 TT, which is their adventure bike. It's the V85 Travel, so it comes with bags. It's got cruise control, little motorcycle, little commercial here for Moto Guzzi. <laughs> it's, it's a great bike. It, the, the, the engine is transverse. It's like the old CX 500 and 650s from Honda. Cylinders sticking out the side, either side. Yeah. So, so if you're sitting at a stoplight and you blip the throttle, the bike kind of torques. Right. Twists over on you. Torques yeah. to the, to the one side. It's fun. And mm-hmm. it's diff- anyway, the wheels are on the pavement and I'm just on a very slight corner, but I'm, I'm on the grade. And it's a two-cylinder, so it's a little bumpy. And I get off the bike. You got off the bike. The bike is leaned over on the side stand. Yeah. Everything seems fine. Everything's fine. And I walk over and I I grab the hat and I turn around. And here's my bike. Okay, so I got off the bike with with the, the handlebars cranked with the wheel pointing to the left. Okay, so this logging road is on a slight incline. Because I'm on a, just a very slight corner, the road is actually canted high on the right, low on the left. So the bike's leaning over a little more than it would on flat ground. Just a little bit. Okay. Just a little bit. But it's also pointed uphill. So because it's a two-cylinder, it's got a little bit of vibration to it. So I turn around and here's my bike sliding towards me on the side stand. Now, how fast is this moving at this point? Well, uh, probably about three or four kilometers, maybe. Well, I, I, I walked about 10 to 15 feet away from it. Mm-hmm. So, and it's also turning. Okay, so it's turning. It's, it's curving to my left as I'm facing it. So it's on the side stand, and because I'm downhill, there's the point where it starts to overbalance and I go, Oh, Oh shit. And (laughs) so now I'm looking at a bike that weighs in excess of 500 pounds and it's now falling towards me. Because it's now leaned away from the the side stand. Yeah. And it's starting to stand up, but it's not going to stand up for long. It's going to keep going. Exactly. Right towards you. So now I've got a 500 pound mass falling towards me. And, uh, like I wear full gear when I ride. So I, I've, I've got, you know, the, the textile adventure suit. I've got a pair of, of adventure boots. They aren't the soft ones. They're hard plastic. So the bike hit me. So, so hang on. So, so it, it just came back. Now, did you not have time to move out of the way or anything? You just sort of froze? Well, it's a brand new bike. I just picked the thing up in, in the spring. So you tried to grab it. Yeah, I tried to catch it. Mm-hmm. Mistake. 
sensible thing to do when you see the bike want <laughs> to fall over. At least at the, in the moment, I've got to stop this from happening. But okay, so what happens? Well, as at, I weigh 180 pounds. You know, I'm, I'm fairly muscular for a 65-year-old guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm in good shape for a 65-year-old guy. Put it that way. Um, but I can't stop a 500-pound motorcycle that's moving towards me and falling on me. Stupid. Anyway. Well, you thought you could. You, <laughs> at the time, you, you were, you were kind of hoping you could. Well, of course, in my brain, I'm still 28, right? I right. can do anything. <laughs> so um, the bike flattens me. Uh, so here I am. I'm I'm lying in the middle of the what is the northbound lane on a hill in a slight corner with a running motorcycle on top of me. Yeah, when you when that happens, when you when the when you go to grab the bike, the bike hits you and just bowls you over, basically. Yeah. What what runs through your mind at that point? Well, what went through my mind was this, this is a pretty stupid thing to attempt, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, it's like, what was I thinking? And and I realized that the passenger, the right passenger foot peg has landed right on the buckle of my boot. So I can't pull my foot out. Like, I am trapped. I am trapped with this thing on top of me. Are you on your back? Uh, yeah, basically yeah. I'm on, I'm, well, I'm kind of on my back on my right side. Yeah. So I, I reach down or reach up and I turn off, the, turn off the bike and I, you know, make a couple attempts to, uh, push the bike off me and that's not working. So I try to pull my foot out as I'm trying to lift the bike and that's not working. So try, trying to lift this bike up far enough so I could get my foot out is a non-starter. Like this thing is flat on me. There's no, you know, it's, it's not resting on the engine guards on a, like a 40 or 38 degree angle. It is flat and it, all the weight, well, half the weight is on my boot. So what do you feel? What do you you feel at that point your situation is? I'm hopeless. Mm-hmm. I am not going anywhere until something comes around the corner. Now, safety-wise, though? Safety-wise, um, I wasn't terribly worried about it because uphill, you know, there's, I had a couple hundred yards of, of, of view uh, before I couldn't see anything coming around the corner. And I was also in the northbound lane. So anything coming from me from, from uphill is coming downhill towards me and there in the southbound lane. Now, I am on a logging road, but it is a weekend. And sometimes logging operations continue on the weekends. Well, a lot of the trucks are privately owned up here. So sometimes, you know, it's the truck that has the little log loader parked on the front and they can go out in the bush and load themselves or they'll go out on a Sunday and load themselves and then so that they can get more runs in on a Monday. Anyway, so I'm thinking, hmm. So I look downhill and, and still I've got about 150, 200 yards of, so, so I'm feeling fairly safe. So now what do I do? So I figure, well, I'm here. I'll take a picture. 
because I don't have a buddy here to take a picture and laugh at me. <laughs> so I laugh at myself and I take a, <laughs> take a picture of myself with this bike trapped. Oh, man, it was it was comical. I thought you were going to say that's where you reach for your inreach device or your your Zolio or something like that to call for help. Oh, no, but I have but a Zolio. Oh, you do. I have a Zolio, but I wasn't going to use it. And of of course, I've I've got like a bar on my cell phone, mm. but you know, I tried making a call and like it's it's a whisper of a bar. I think it's not really enough to do anything with it. Right, you might get a text message out, but but not a, a voice call. Yeah, maybe. And the thing is, if you press like the the, the uh, SOS button, I mean, really, like to get by the time somebody gets there, they'll have, you know, like to, to lift this bike off you. I guess really what you're doing is you're stuck waiting for and hoping for someone to come along and help you. That's yeah. going to be probably the fastest route. Yeah. Either way, I'm waiting for someone to come and lift this thing. Yeah. But what if someone doesn't? Like, did, did that run through your mind that I could be laying here? And then what if somebody doesn't come by for hours? Um, I was fine with that. You know, I've got a great pair of boots on that. That was my single issue. If, if I'd have been wearing a a lesser pair of boots, I'd have been in trouble because my ankle would have been broken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that for certain. I had another commercial coming up here. I had a pair of climb adventure, hard plastic boots on and they're fantastic. You know, they're, they really are. And it saved my, it saved me. Yeah. Well worth the money spent and of any aggravation you have of wearing a bulky, stiff boot, there's where it just pays off. And who would have thought that it's when you get off your bike to pick up a baseball cap? I know. So okay, you're laying on the road, this logging road, North Vancouver Island, Canada. It's a weekend. There's potential of a, of a logging truck coming along. What happens? How do you get out of this? I'm lying in the middle of the road with my with my ear cocked to hear sounds and yes I hear the logging truck coming down the road. Oh. And I'm thinking I'm thinking oh god oh god oh god I hope he's paying attention. <laughs> now for those who don't know logging trucks especially on Vancouver Island just describe what a logging truck could look like coming along there. Well there's there's two kinds of logging trucks. <clears throat> there's the on-road one and there's the off-road one. The on-road ones, they're, there's okay, what can I compare it to? It's a typical tractor that you'll see on the highway. Yeah, it's the typical truck you'd see on the highway. Mm-hmm. Now, the off-road ones, they're about five or six feet wider. And the loads are wider and heavier. Okay, now I'm thinking to myself, I hope that's an unloaded logging truck because if it's a loaded logging truck, it's going to take a lot more time to stop. Mm-hmm. So around this corner comes an unloaded logging truck. Mm. And I am so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. Because he's not going to run me over. You know, he comes around the corner and he straightens out and he's heading straight for me and then he sees me and then, you know, you can hear him gearing down and he pulls up within about, you know, 40 yards, which still, you know, it's a big truck. And and he walks over and he goes, huh. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he didn't even ask me what happened. 
He says, well, you don't look hurt. <laughs> I said, no, I'm really not. I'm physically, I'm okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> mentally, I'm a little injured. <laughs> he, he, he was an older guy, like probably close to my age, big, burly, lumberjack kind of dude. He picked up my bike like, like it was a, a, a matchbox. You know, and, and I got up and I stretched and I limped around a couple, you know, for a couple seconds and then, you know, thank him very much profusely and uh, start up the bike and push it to the side and park it in the dirt, leave it in gear, hit the kill switch, all those things. He didn't get a picture of you on the ground. No. No, he, no, he didn't. Take the, he didn't take the picture because that would have been the ultimate uh, insult to injury, right? Yeah. He, before he helps you out, he goes, "Let me grab a shot of this." Now, if it was my buddy who had been on the ride, if he had come along, he definitely would have walked around a three hundred and sixty degree thing with a video or taking pictures as he walked, <laughs> laughing. <laughs> This is a, something that you never think would happen. It's, it's it, you know, something so benign, just pull over on the side of the road. Um, I know. Obviously, you couldn't have imagined that the bike would roll after you and crush you. No. Um, but was there any indication, you know, in looking back that the bike wasn't firmly parked on the side stand? No. Well, it was right. firmly parked on the side stand. When I walked away from it, like it, it didn't... It didn't give any feeling like it was, like was going to slide? Or, no, not at all. Not a, right. not in the least, but the thump of the motor and the you know little jiggling and oof away she came. You already mentioned just there a few of the things that you've learned from this, as far as parking the the bike on on the side stand, you know, on this hill, and it's it really is one of those things that you, I mean, you could do this over and over, and you'd probably never get it to roll back again, but it shows that there there's a possibility there. So some of the stuff you talked about, like what did you learn from it? Um, park it in the dirt, roll it back so that your side stand is dug in a little bit, turn the motor off, leave it in gear. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah, that's our biggest one, isn't it? I mean, because let's yeah. face it, we have no parking brake. You know, there's nothing to hold it. I mean, it makes sense to just shut it off and, and leave it in gear and, and then it's problem solved. Yeah. Yeah. When the bike came back and you you said it, like it was starting to flop over and you were going to try and grab it, it was one of those times where you know the brain doesn't really work out what's what's going to happen. And of course, there's always the hope that there's a chance that you could have balanced it, but not very likely, unless you were reaching for the brake. I mean, that might have been something that you could do. Were you trying for the brake? I had no thought concept of hitting the brake at all. You know, mm -hmm. if if I'd been, I, I don't know, I don't know if the brake would have helped. Because I think it was already on its, like, well on its way past center. Oh, it was already coming over, yeah. 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 So if this ever happened again, you looked up and you saw your bike coming at you, what would you, what would you do? Would you... Run. Run. <laughs> Just <laughs> run in, at, at a 90 degree angle to its direction of travel. Yeah, yeah. Just get out of the way, man. Because it's going to squish you. Let it go. 
I remember we did an episode uh, a couple of years back. I think it was we we had um, Jim Hyde from Rawhide. And what we talked about was actually was dropping your bike. Just this, when to, it wasn't in this, obviously in this sort of setup, but it was when to, to realize that the bike is going to go over. You just have to let it happen. It's just one of those things. So this was to do with off-road riding and you, you get in a position where the bike tilts over as it did there too far. And Jim's point was just, you know, you have to just basically let it go. You can try and ease it down maybe a bit. And this is if you're in control of the bike to begin with, but um, there are times we just have to let it go. Totally. Totally. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure I've heard that podcast, mm. that, that episode. I've, my, my son, my son turned me on to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, nice. And, <laughs> and I started at the, at the very beginning of them and I've been working my way through. I'm, I'm pretty much caught up by now. Oh, very but nice. It's, it's uh, certainly very entertaining and uh, it's, it's lots of fun, you know, cause you can, I can, listen to them as I'm going down the road. I can listen to them as I'm working on, working on my wood lathe, you know, and you can picture everything in your mind as they're talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's very well done. It's a very well done podcast and your guests are very entertaining. And there's another ad you just did. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Well, David, thank you very much for sharing your story. And, and this is, is a, unusual. And certainly, I think it'll make us all think about it when we're getting off our bike and leaving it somewhere. Thanks so much. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. Well, again, here, what did we learn from Dave's story? I guess shut off your bike when you're getting off it and put it in gear. Remember, side stands don't get much traction. They're generally flat, smooth metal. In fact, they're designed to dissipate weight so they don't dig in to, well, save your driveway, but also stop the bike from flopping over. So they're almost designed to ski the bike. Expect the unexpected, I guess, as always. Satcoms, again, on the body. And uh, maybe cool heads prevail. I mean, he could have panicked, but he stayed calm despite the potential problems that he had. That story was from Dave Rogers from Port McNeil in British Columbia, Canada. Now, we've got some pics from Dave's adventure as well in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Now, in fact, there is a page set up on our website just for Deep Trouble, the Deep Trouble series. It's adventureriderradio.com forward slash deep trouble. And if you think you have a story that would be good for our Deep Trouble series, drop by the website and send us the details. We'd love to hear about it. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and of course to you thank you very much for being a part of this by listening to the show. This show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We really appreciate it. If you enjoy the show you're getting something from it from this one and the one that we do once a month raw 
we'd love it if you drop our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Anything $10 or more will get you some Adventure Rider Radio stickers. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. And we would really appreciate it if you'd consider our patron option, where you can put any amount for once a month and, uh, and help support the show that way. Much appreciated if you'd have a look at it. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. And oh, and don't forget about our other show, Adventure Rider Radio Rock. Comes out once a month. Comes out on the 21st of every month. As a matter of fact, there's a new episode out right now. that just came out last week. Get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you next week. Well, I'm Ted Simon, and here I am on Adventure Rider Radio again, uh, and extremely happy to be here with Jim Martin. (laughs) 